the volume. Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Superchargers, headlights, and more with over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Boxing with Chris Mannix is brought to you by FanDuel. It's never been easier to play fantasy on FanDuel. Whether you love basketball, golf, soccer, or any other fantasy sport, there is a contest for every fan. FanDuel, more ways to win. This is Boxing with Chris Manning. Oh, somebody punch him in the face. Anthony Joshua is a composed and ferocious finisher. Watch this. Andy Ruiz is the heavyweight champion. Hosted by SI's Chris Mannix. That was my moment. Now with interviews, analysis, and everything going on in the world of boxing. When you have talent, you are given another chance. Here's Chris Mannix. All right, welcome back to another episode of Boxing with Chris Mannix, part of the Volume Sports Podcast Network. Great show lined up for you today. I have finally tracked down Sergio Mora, the former junior middleweight champion, DAZN broadcaster. He joins me in Los Angeles to talk about a whole bunch of different things, from Gervonta Davis's win a couple of weeks back, Deontay Wilder, some of the stuff he's posting on Instagram, a little strange, we talk about the fights this weekend. Zerto Ramirez against Sullivan Barrera. You've got Jojo Diaz back against Javier Fortuna. Plus, Conor McGregor. Are his days as a boxer over as McGregor heads into a huge MMA fight this weekend? A little bit later on, Ben Baskin, the longtime sports reporter. He has a terrific new podcast series out called Lost in Sports. The most recent episode focuses on the bite fight, the memorable fight between Mike Tyson and and Evander Holyfield. Specifically, Ben looks at what happened to that chunk of Evander Holyfield's ear that Tyson chewed off. It's a great conversation and a great podcast that Ben Baskin puts out. Quick housekeeping note, if you like this podcast, one way to support it. Get over to Apple Podcasts, post a comment, leave a rating. It's simple, it's easy, it's free. It's the best way to make sure that we keep doing this podcast week after week. That's it. All right. Onto the show. Are you, you going to take your Invisalign out? Are we are we doing We're, an intro? No. I want your producer to play Man on the Run. We'll, we'll play that in a second. But could you <laughs> take your Invisalign out? Sergio Mora, former junior middleweight champion, the zone broadcaster. We have tracked him down. I People that have listened to this podcast have heard the audio. Uh, but to, to recap... A few weeks ago, we were in El Paso, Texas. I had scheduled the podcast with you. 
Uh, we were supposed to do it after I landed. Went, could you put the Invisalign thing in your pocket, please? <laughs> That's so gross. We had scheduled to do the podcast when I landed. And I landed, and I was greeted to a video that sounded something like this. Manix, I'm a man on the run, and I'm not doing your fucking podcast. We're not doing it, bro. I'm a man on the run. On the run. People haven't seen the video, Sergio, because I didn't post the video portion of it, but you're in a convertible, an Uber convertible. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't even know that existed. And you're driving what I thought you were driving towards the Mexico border at that point. It was a lift, and it was me and Todd Grisham, and we weren't going towards the border, and we were just going alongside it. And I, uh, I was having fun, Maddox. I was a man on the run at that time. It was playing in the background. It was a soundtrack to my life and the feeling I was, I was in right there. And I wasn't doing your effing podcast. Well, the best part of <laughs> the best part of all that was the next day, you see me at the fighter meetings. And you're like, man, I was waiting for you. I was ready to go, ready to record. And I go, Sergio, I show you the video. He goes, oh man, I forgot I did that. I was prepared, but then eleven Trulies later. By the way, this podcast should be sponsored by Truly. Truly, the best sparkling water and sparkling hard mixed drink that you can get out there on stores. God, you're an idiot. <laughs> best hard seltzer in the market, man. I'm telling you. Stop. They're not paying you for that. Stop. Wait until they give you money uh, for that advertisement. Uh, but we are here in Los Angeles. Sergio is home. I am here at the hotel getting ready for the DAZN card on Friday night. Friday night card headlined by Gilberto Ramirez taking on Sullivan Barrera. Jojo Diaz, he fights on the undercard against Javier Fortuna. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Before we get into it, though, Sergio, I want to ask, do you have any, to, to put a button on the argument that Akin Barak and I had last week, they believe Gervonta Davis has already proven himself to be an elite fighter. I believe he has to actually beat real opponents to be considered an elite fighter. Where do you stand in that debate? He hasn't been an elite fighter, so I can't call him elite yet. And I think he's right outside your pound-for-pound pound list. But I love how uh, both Bach, Barack and Ak were uh, challenging you. They made some great points. And I, I got to say, man, out of that that argument, it wasn't really an argument. That debate, I edged it out to them because they, you made some good points too. They made some excellent points. And I, I got to agree with with uh, with you on the elite part, but everything else, I got to say, they they made some good points. What were the what what good points did they make? Uh, listen, I don't have enough time to do it. We're talking remember. about my. You don't opinion, even remember. Man. You don't even remember. You don't remember any of the good points. They made. But like like everything else, you want to straddle the fence. Say you made good points, but you made good points. No, too. The, no. The, I, here's one. Name an elite fighter that Golovkin beat. That that was a great point they made. Uh, they made several. I'm telling yeah, you, the Demetrius Andrade point that they tried. Demetrius Andrade. That's another one. But here's my thing too on that. Like Demetrius Andrade has the amateur background that Javante Davis does not have. Demetrius Andrade, you know, he's at least seeking out those opponents. He's not had those opponents since, because nobody will fight him. Gennady Golovkin for years did not have those opponents. And by the way, I don't have Demetrius Andrade in my top 10 pound for pound. I did. I still have Gennady Golovkin at the back end of, of mine, but he. I didn't have him when he was fighting nobodies early in his career. So, you can say whatever you want, but if you're going to put a guy top 10 pound for pound, you better beat more than Jose Pedraza. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, that, that's the reason I don't have him in my top 10. I think he's outside of it, top 15 maybe, because he's a pound for pound attraction. He's a pound for pound power puncher, and he's he's pound for pound popular. So 
that right there makes him elite. He's a ticket seller, and I, I'm on the I'm on the tank train. I think he's going to be special. I think he's going to crack the top ten rankings, uh, maybe this time next year. But for right now, he needs that dancing partner. He needs that B side, and he can continue doing what he's doing. That's destroying opponents. Uh, he's going to just get bigger and bigger. The pay-per-view numbers aren't going to matter. Whether they're, I mean, whether they're high or low, it's not going to matter because he's already doing. Uh, he's taking a page out of Mayweather's book with when he fought Gotti. They didn't do over, you know, 500,000 buys. I think he did like 300,000. That was a good start for pay-per-view. From there, it just went on to 400, 500, 600,000. Then now he's the, the pay, pay, uh, pay-per-view king. Nah, look, that made Mayweather a star too, going to Jersey to face Gotti. We, we'll leave it at that. If you want to hear more about the uh, Gervonta Davis. No, 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 no. Before we leave it, you made a good point uh, to put a button on it. Like you would say, when you said, who do you take out of the pound for pound? Yeah. That's a great point. It's like the, because like, I don't take out Tyson Fury. No, I don't take it, out Gallo Estrada. I don't take out uh, uh, Josh Golovkin, Taylor. Josh Taylor. No. So that's why you can't put them in pump. This is, it's it's like for, in the NBA when people like that guy should have been an all-star. Well, there are 24 all-star slots. Who comes off? You can't just say somebody's an all-star without telling me who's not. It's as simple as that. Right. So, uh, we talked about it last week. Check out last week's episode with Akin Barak if you want to hear more about Gervonta Davis. Sergio, as we're recording this, the breaking news is that the Fury-Wilder fight could be postponed because of a COVID outbreak in Tyson Fury's camp. It is unclear at the moment um, exactly how big that outbreak is, if it's causing a delay in training. ESPN reported that it's likely, though, that the fight is postponed potentially to September. Other outlets have reported the same thing. So I, I use that to, as a preface to this next question. Deontay Wilder, you follow him on social media. You see all the things he's posting, the weightlifting, the trash talking. Um, what have you made of everything you've seen of Deontay Wilder over the last few weeks? First of all, he was one of the most destructive punchers in boxing. So why is he lifting weights? I just don't get it. So tell Weight, me about that though. Like weights did you... don't don't translate into power. Okay. If that happened, I would have been a power punch. I would have been Julian Jackson because I tried everything to pick up my power. It wasn't gonna happen, Mannix, because you're born with power. And he was born with that natural big power. Even as raw as it is, he didn't have an amateur. That, well, I mean, even though he won a bronze medal, he didn't have he didn't have uh, that pedigree normally. Uh, other fighters have, you know, because he's a heavyweight. He gets he gets away with it. He, he, all he needs is a big jab and a big right hand, and he has both. He he became one of the the, the biggest attractions, the biggest punchers. Now all of a sudden, with 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 one one loss, one bad loss, and a draw, you want to change your whole strategy. That's not how boxing works. You 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 fire trainers, the fires that, that the trainers that got you to forty wins. That's not how boxing works. You just there, there's going to come a time where you meet somebody that's going to just be better than you, that has your number, and that's Tyson Fury because he has the upper body movement. He doesn't uh, stay in front of Wilder long enough to let uh, Wilder plant his feet and land that big power, and that's where the rawness comes in. That's where the lack of, of, of pedigree comes in. It's not his trainer's fault. It's just the fact that he's a big, strong heavyweight that started late in boxing. Tyson Fury, it's the opposite of that. What you do with fighters like that is you plan on going the distance with them. You don't try to go out there and knock them out. You don't fire trainers. You don't start lifting weights. And you don't. You certainly start doing things that you didn't do for the last 40-some-odd fights. Try to become a boxer and nifty on your feet. No, you're a destructive puncher. You go forward. You, you jab and land that big right hand. And you have bad technique. That's Deontay Wilder. All of a sudden, they're, they're trying to make him into a, a, a upper body movement, nifty feet. It reminds me of when... Uh, um, 
uh, Ricky Hatton got knocked out by Floyd Mayweather. What did he do? He adopted that Mayweather style. He went from being a bulldozer to training with Mayweather and doing that pity pat thing that he was making fun of him about on 24-7. You don't do that. It doesn't translate, and that's what's going to happen to Wilder. You know, I want to go back to that for a second there because I think in pop culture, there is the idea that lifting weights will give you power. I remember from Rocky Balboa when there was that exchange between Sylvester Stallone and Tony Burton, who played Rocky's trainer in that movie. To beat this guy, you need speed. You don't have it. And your knees can't take the pounding. So hard running is out. And you got arthritis in your neck. And you've got calcium deposits on most of your joints. So sparring is out. I had that problem. So what we'll be calling on is good old-fashioned blunt force trauma, horsepower, heavy-duty, cast-iron, pile-driving punches that will have to hurt so much they'll rattle his ancestors. Every time you hit him with his shot, it's got to feel like he tried kissing the express train. Yeah, let's start building some hurting bombs. So what you're telling me is that weights have nothing to do. Building like building muscle that way has nothing to do with in-ring power. Absolutely not. Power comes from, I mean, I know it sounds <laughs> sounds weird for me to say what, where power comes from because I have absolutely <laughs> none of it, but I, I studied it. I tried to get it, and I, I can tell you, power punchers, and I'm sure you heard this before, they are born. You can't make power punchers. So you just, they have that, 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 that torque. They have that timing. Now, power comes behind technique. And guys that don't have back, that have bad technique, like say a Ricardo Mayorga, they just have naturally heavy hands, big power. And there's different types of power, heavy-handed power, fast power, switch, uh, uh, you know, a slinging power. Power comes in many shapes and forms. And Deontay Wilder has that brute, raw power, that strength. And it's not, it doesn't come out of speed or technique. It's just raw. He was born with that. So you can't teach anyone what he was born with. And you can't create that just like you can't create speed. You can create technique. You can create strength. You can create a conditioning. And all that will make you powerful minded, but it won't make you, it won't translate into your fist. Yeah. That's interesting because he's done a lot of weightlifting, screaming, all that stuff. We'll see if it's remotely consequential going into the fight. Let's talk about the fights that we're working on this weekend. Gilberto Ramirez, a former 168 pound champion. He is now campaigning at 175 and he's facing his first real opponent, his first real test in Sullivan Barrera who has become something of a gatekeeper in recent years. Uh, he has fought Andre Ward uh, before. He has fought and lost to Dimitri Bivol. Uh, he has won some good fights that's kept him in the mix, but he is largely that gatekeeper that you have to beat to prove yourself at a certain weight class. Uh, you've seen a lot of Ramirez over the years. How do you think he's going to be at 175? And do you look at him as having a chance to emerge as one of the top fighters in that weight class. Yes, I think Ramirez has the potential to be something that top rank saw in them when, when in him when they signed him. Uh, he's a good-looking, handsome, tall, uh, bilingual. You know, he, he came out power punching, knocking people out. But he's an he he's an attraction. He just uh, he hasn't captured the imagination of his 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 home fans the mexican fans and latino fans and that's what he's doing here in los angeles i think 
Um, he but talent-wise, a- though, this is what I'm kind of getting into. Like, Gilberto Ramirez at 168. No, you said attraction, not talent-wise. No, I said, I said you think he merged as a threat to one, or as one of the top guys. You didn't say guys. threat. I did say threat. That's literally what I said was threat. I thought you said attraction. I did okay, not. If that's that attraction, okay, look. Threat, absolutely is going to be a threat. At six foot three and a half, 75-inch reach, the guy's undefeated. All that is a threat to anybody. We're not accustomed to that. When, whenever you have a tall fighter like that, and a southpaw, that and an excellent body puncher, and beautiful uppercuts with a long, strong jab, and he's aggressive. I mean, it's a threat, 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 and those are the type of fighters that you want to avoid and you want to you wanna try to steer clear from. But Ramirez has that extra gear where he'll go for the knockout, so it's not like he's a, a typical southpaw where he's happy with the decision. You know, he came out blasting everyone in, his ha- in the first half of his career. And yeah, the but everybody half- does that. Everybody blasts everybody. That was my point. But then he started fighting better opposition, and that's where he's at. Now, 175, if he was struggling to make 168, where he had the majority of his knockouts, and he outgrew that weight class at 30, understandable. Now it's time to be a force at 175, and I think he can because he punches with leverage, and he's an excellent body puncher, like I said. So even if he doesn't have that brute strength of a better BF or even a Bevo, even, even a Bevo, or, of, of course, a Joe Smith, he can break him down with body shots. He's an excellent inside fighter, and he can control a lead on the cards and fight behind a strong, disciplined jab. So, yeah, he's going to be a threat. I think the jury's still out on Ramirez. Like, he had some good wins um, as he was climbing the ranks. He beat Arthur Abraham. That was a good win. He beat Maxime Vlasov, and that win looks even better after we saw Vlasov give Joe Smith everything he could hope for in a fight uh, earlier this year. But he's largely known for his fights with Jesse Hart. And those were close fights, both of them. Ramirez won both of them, justifiably. But I feel like we're we're considering him a top guy because he beat Jesse Hart. And likewise, Jesse Hart is kind of only known for his fights against uh, Gilberto Ramirez. When Hart faced Joe Smith, he lost. And so I, I, don't, I don't know what we have in Jesse Hart. I, I wonder, and this, that's kind of what I'm looking at this fight, Sergio. I, I think we're going to learn a lot about Ramirez against Barrera because Barrera is a tough guy. I think he's only been stopped once by Bevel, so he's probably going to go the distance. He's got quality wins on his resume, including one against Joe Smith, where he broke Joe Smith's jaw in that fight. So th- this, to me, is going to tell us a lot about where Ramirez is. If he walks through Sullivan Barrera or wins a lopsided decision, absolutely. Bring on Smith or bring on Ramirez versus uh, Joe Smith. Bring on Ramirez versus Dimitri Bevel. Bring on Ramirez versus anybody. But if he struggles, you know, we might have to rethink our kind of anointing of Gilberto Ramirez as a top guy. I hate to be the pessimist here because normally you're the correct, the, 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 you know, half the glass half empty guy, but not when you're out of the ring two years like Sullivan Barrera, not when you're 39 years old like Barrera, not when you lost two out of your last three fights. So I agree. He's that gatekeeper type that, that, you know, that fighter that could have been, should have been, but it, it, it didn't happen. It, it, so I just don't think at this point of his career, He's going to be able to do a threat. Now, he he can maybe, the first half of the fight's going to be exciting. So, Solomon Barrera always gets clipped and goes down, gets up, and shows courage. Uh, Ramirez will clip him in that first half of the fight, and he does engage. Barrera does have the power to hurt you, and he's more of the natural light heavyweight. So, with all that included, the first five rounds, Mannix, mark my words, if Barrera has a chance... To, to do anything, it's going to be in the first five rounds. And I expect Barrera to get hurt in those first five rounds. Maybe even drop, maybe even stop. 
but we're going to see some fireworks and we're going to see what Ramirez is made of at 175 because we have a legitimate 175 pounder. At, le at least he's been at that weight division a lot longer than Ramirez. And um, like I said, he has amateur pedigree. So that always gets involved as well when you come this high up the ranks as a boxer. So the amateur pedigree, he's, he's already uh, fought and only lost at the best. But um, yeah, he's at the tail end of his career. Say this about Ramirez. We saw him today at the weigh-in. I saw him earlier today in the hotel lobby. Looks healthy. Looks like, you know, this is a good weight for him. Feels good, feels strong. So we'll see if that translates on fight night. Let's talk about the co-main event, which actually, Sergio, is the fight I'm probably most excited about. You've got Joseph Diaz Jr., Jojo Diaz, the former 130-pound title holder, moving up to face one of the more avoided guys at 135 in Javier Fortuna. Fortuna has been chasing a big fight for a couple of years now. He has been trying to get Devin Haney in the ring. He has been trying to get Ryan Garcia in the ring. He has not been able to do it. He was supposed to face Ryan Garcia this summer for one of those weird interim titles that make no sense. But Garcia, obviously dealing with some mental health issues, pulled out. Jojo Diaz said, I'm in. I'll take that fight. I give him credit, Sergio, for stepping up to fight a very tough guy in Fortuna, but I don't think he's, I think he might be in for some trouble here. Like, I like Fortuna a lot in this fight. A more natural 135-pounder, a legitimate puncher, the bigger puncher of the two for sure, and a legitimate puncher, I think, at 135. A guy that's really only lost to some of the better fighters in his weight class. You go back, Robert Easter Jr., uh, the, what, the draw with Granados. Like, he's had some some very close fights against top guys or top 10-ish guys in and around that weight class. What do you think of this matchup? Is JoJo biting off more than he can chew here? Well, considering he's moving up in weight, he's biting off and chewing and swallowing it and eating it. JoJo Diaz, it, you know, he, he's fighting in a weight division he doesn't belong in. Most of his knockouts were at 122. Uh, he started struggling at 126. Um, you know, he missed weight at 130. So obviously he's a growing boy. Obviously, you know, this, this you know, 2020 and this pandemic and eating and he just had a, a, a newborn kid and, and all this is a perfect storm for being, not being disciplined, you know, not staying in the gym, not sticking to routine. And these sound like excuses, but I can tell you, me and Jojo Diaz have a lot of similarities in our career. Not only are we still, you know, from the same area, we, we, we trained in the same gyms and, you know, we grew up around the same people, but you know, I should have lost my title on the scale, but, you know, I just bit down and I left my fight on the scale. I should have lost it on the scale. That should have been the smart thing to do. Um, but JoJo tried. He couldn't do it. Three and a half pounds, which is exactly how heavy I was when I was overweight with Vernon Forrest. And then I lost it. And then I was hungry to get it back. I wanted the toughest fights. That's not the mentality you want coming right back. You know, you, you want to settle back in and get your confidence at, at a weight division you're comfortable in. If he's not going to stay at 135, then what's he doing fighting at 135? You know, um, he doesn't have the height to fill out 135. Well, the, now, answer, if, the answer to that question, though, is like he didn't have anything scheduled. He saw an opportunity. And he jumped that. I think we give him credit for that. No, no. We're, look, I'm going to get to the credit. I'm just talking for the fighter. Yeah. Uh, we're giving him credit for being a 135 pounder and, and, and throwing his hat in the mix. And no, I can understand why he did that. You know, he wants the big fight. He wants to prove himself after a draw. That's the first thing I wanted to do after my draw with Mosley. I called Golden Boy and said, get me anybody. I was going to fight it as only Lara. At one point, anybody, because I was so embarrassed about that draw. That's where exactly where where um, where Jojo Diaz is at. That's not the right. That's not the right mental 
uh, uh, place he wants to be at. And yeah, you made the he, rest of us watch that Mosley fight. That was that was harder than fighting it. Man, you don't have to bring it that. But Jojo Diaz is gonna have his hands full, man. I think he's he's gonna be in trouble with Fortuna. I I don't know what the odds are yet. I'm gonna find out. But I would think. I believe as we record this, uh, Jojo is a slight favorite. Wow. Which... Okay, that's that's. I would think it's e either even or Fortuna might be favorite. Fortuna is no joke, man. I'm telling you, he's no joke. He just throws the right slinging punches. He's very confident. Um, I was talking to one of Fortuna's. I was talking sense. to one of Fortuna's people um, earlier this week, and I was saying to him, "I'm like, do you like Javier's chances to win this fight?" He goes, "Absolutely." I go, "Why?" He goes, "This guy spent the entire pandemic stuck in Puerto Rico, like couldn't leave because of the pandemic. All he did was train, and he's coming in here with a mindset not just to win." but to knock Jojo Diaz out. Now, sometimes that can work against you, but Fortuna as the bigger guy, and you throw in the fact, Sergio, that Jojo is a pressure fighter. He has been since his days at lighter weight classes. You can be a pressure fighter against lesser punchers, but if you're going up against a guy at a different weight class that can crack, I don't know, man. He might walk into something. That can crack and box. What I notice about, what I notice about Fortuna is he goes after the taller opponents and becomes the bully and goes and slinging punches, overhand rights. And I mean, he throws every punch in the book. He knows how to fight uh, taller fighters aggressive, but with shorter fighters, he knows how to box, man. He has, he has little flashes of, of, and I hate to say it, but Mayweather in there. Like he has that little, you know, confidence, that swagger, that box, he has that power. And then once he's, once he hurts you, he goes after the knockout. I think he's more Maidana than Mayweather. Like he's kind of like, Oh man. Yeah. I was watching him fight yesterday. He, he has a little bit of, yeah, it's controlled recklessness, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you right now that's exactly what it is. To your eyes, he looks he like McDonough. Like no, McDonough wasn't controlled. That was reckless. He just had the power, the cinder block hands to, to get away with I mean, it. Fortuna had a point taken away against Robert Easter because he rabbit punched him three times in the back of the head. Like he's got some re recklessness to him. Well, no, Easter was going down and holding his one of his arms, and he was punching down at him. So that's yeah, exactly he got a point taken away. From that's him. what we're taught to do. If you're holding one arm, I'm going to hit you with. with Easter had his I back can. turned though. That was it, no, no, no. We're gonna we're gonna disagree here. I I think that was the right thing to do. But Fortuna is known to throw low blows though. He is known to to punch borderline behind the head, but that's because he sometimes punches down. Anyway, I think he's a dangerous opponent, and if he's motivated and in shape. It's going to be even more dangerous. Both these guys have their faults on the scale. You know, they they both, you know, didn't make weight and they both uh, showed that they didn't have the best discipline. Mm -hmm. But if what you said is right and he was stuck in Puerto Rico and there was, you know, uh, a pandemic going on, and he was stuck in the gym. Man, it's going to be it's going to be exciting, especially for Jojo Diaz, who's a you know, he's a new father. He's going to want to impress, uh, you know, his family and, and he's going to want to resurrect his career with his new management and everything else. It, it's probably going to be the fight of the night, man. I'm really excited about that fight. It's it's it has it has upset in the air, but who knows, man? No, it's. I think it's going to be great. I think to the winner goes something big. I think for you know JoJo probably should go back to 130 one way or the other. But if he goes back to 130 with a win over Javier Fortuna, that's going to put him in line for a bigger fight. Same thing with Fortuna. He beats JoJo Diaz, which would be the biggest name on his resume, former world champion, very recently, um, he will be able to make a claim that he should face Ryan Garcia next. He should face Devin Haney next. And if one of them does it in spectacular fashion, it's only going to make them that much more marketable. When you, you said something earlier about the Forrest fight. When you got off the scale there, did you know like you were going to lose? 
Like because of how you felt. No, no, I was undefeated at the time. I was champion at the time. But like, I, did you know you felt different? Like, did you like this is not good? Like, I had to kill myself. To I literally that was the worst I've ever. Three and a yeah. half pounds a lot of weight. It's to lose a lot of weight, day. and not only that, but I lost eight pounds prior to that three and a half pounds. So I was already dry. I lost were, eleven because you went to Vegas. Like, <laughs> yeah, I was. Yeah, <laughs> eleven pounds in in one day, and it, it just took everything out. Of eleven me. pounds in one day. In one day, and it, to this day, I thank God I didn't get hurt. Um, I should have got hurt that fight. Yeah, because your um, brain is all dried up. Like, it was that's... bad, man. It was bad, Maddox. But I could tell you that, you know, what JoJo did was a smart thing. Leave, leave the, forget the belt. That's what I should have done. Vacate the belt, win the fight, move forward. I should have done that. I didn't. I lost the belt on the scale. He lost the belt on the scale, but at least he got a draw out of it. He didn't lose, you know? So at least he, he doesn't have that, that blemish on his record. You think uh, Vernon belongs in the Hall of Fame? Yeah, absolutely. Know, yeah. Yes, 100%. I mean, a two-division champion. Lance Bugmeyer wrote about this. An Olymp- yeah. another, first, let's take it back. 92 Olympian. No one wanted to face him. Two-division champion. No one wanted to face him. Is it his fault that no one wants to face him? He's the first one to dethrone Shane Mosley, who was pound-for-pound pound material at that time. I mean, how how is he not? How is he not? I mean, I can name other guys that are on the Hall of Fame, and I won't because I don't want to you know, disparage them, but I can name guys in the Hall of Fame, but like, how did he get in the Hall of Fame and Vernon Forrest is not? It just He should be in the Hall of Fame by now. Dethrone Sergio Mora too. That's a big win. Biggest win for Forrest. <laughs> I want to finish uh, outside boxing, sort of. Uh, Conor McGregor, he is back this weekend to compete his trilogy fight against Dustin Poirier. Uh, big MMA fight, but there's still chatter about Conor McGregor coming back into boxing. Still a marketable guy. Uh, do you want to see Conor McGregor back in a boxing ring? Do you care? I mean, how do you feel about the possibility of McGregor coming back to boxing? Easy money. Easy money. I welcome Conor McGregor to boxing anytime against legends that are retired. Not against retired? Act- like, but would you like Manny Pacquiao? Yeah, but he's on his way to retirement. Yes. Legends. Errol, Errol Spence might retire him. Okay, well, I'm, I'm talking right, about talk, legends. Discussion for another day. I'm talking about legends. I'm talking about legends that already did they already they already made their bones in boxing for twenty plus years. They've already shed the blood. They already got their respect. Now they just want to cash out and 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 make all the money. And this is we're talking about millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars facing Conor McGregor because they're gonna bring pay per view. You know, four point one million pay per view buys with yeah, but with those Mayweather. days are over. Like, okay, those days are over. Say we'll get half of those. Still a mega success. I agree. It's still going to be tens of millions of dollars to an aging legend that that gave us everything. Now the 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 most we can give them is a pay per view buy and an easy opponent, easy money in a, in an MMA fighter that promotes the fights. That's the thing that makes Conor McGregor so exciting. He can box. He he's actually he's a good striker and he can box. One. Two, he has a big mouth, so he promotes the hell out of the event. So even though he fights a Pacquiao, Pacquiao, you know, he's reticent. Hey, that's a good word. Reticent. He's quiet. Okay. He's quiet. He doesn't sell the fight. But then you got a bombastic. There's another word. See, I'm in my vocabulary mode. Gregarious man like Conor McGregor who's going to sell the fight. So it, it works out both ways. And so McGregor fighting Pacquiao or McGregor coming back to fight, who, whomever, man, I don't care. Bring it on. Easy money. And it's good for the sport. No, I, I think people have proven that they don't need to see a competitive fight. Like, a lot of people bought Mayweather against Logan Paul, knowing full well Logan Paul was not going to win. Most people bought McGregor against Mayweather, knowing that Mayweather was most likely going to win. You put Conor McGregor or any MMA guy in with a top-level boxer, they are going to lose, and they are going to lose badly. But, to your point... Maybe it doesn't do $4 million, 
Maybe it does. Two million. Hell, if it does over one million, everybody's getting rich. Really rich. So I think if McGregor winds up beating Poirier, we will see McGregor back in a boxing ring. Now, if he loses, his marketability goes out the door. Like, if he gets knocked out again by Dustin Poirier, you're not going to see McGregor have the same kind of appeal to boxing fans, to combat sports fans in general. So this is a must-win for him. But I'll tell you what, if McGregor beats Poirier, and let's say hypothetically Pacquiao can beat Errol Spence, Pacquiao-McGregor is, whether we like it or not, is a mega fight at some point, either end of the year or early next year. Huge fight. And if it happens, I hope Manny Pacquiao comes out with a ski mask, just like Floyd Mayweather, because it's going to be another heist. It's going to be another heist. Easy money. How do you say money in, in the Philippines? Get out of my peso? room. Peso? Easy pesos. Get out of my room. FanDuel Fight Night is back. Bigger than ever before. This Saturday, FanDuel's given new users 30 to 1 odds, incredible, on either Conor McGregor or Dustin Poirier to win the UFC 284. That means you can win 150 bucks on a $5 bet. Crazy, right? And if you already have an account, FanDuel is letting all customers bet the fight risk-free. Really, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app, get in on the action. So easy to use. And when you win, you get paid in as little as 24 hours. So don't miss out. Fight of the summer here, McGregor versus Poirier this Saturday. Just use promo code BOXING to get started. All part of FanDuel Fight Night, exclusively on the FanDuel Sportsbook app. 21 and present in Colorado, New Jersey, or Indiana. Odds boost available for new users only. Must wager on designated boost market, $10. Deposit required. Max bonus, $150. Risk-free bet refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in seven days. Max refund, $10 restrictions apply. See full terms for both offers at FanDuel.com sportsbook. Gaming problem? Call 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, and 1-800-GAMBLER in Jersey ebay motors is here for the ride now i'm supposed to talk here about what i remember and what i loved about my first car and that's easy for me to do because i still have my first car and as long as it keeps running and so far so good i intend to have that car probably until the day i die Uh, That's how much I love that car. It is like a child to me. Now, it does require some upkeep, and that's why I'm grateful for a place like eBay Motors. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... You're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it and travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel, it's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. What's up? I'm John Wall. And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. We're now joined by three-time NBA Sixth Man of the Year, elite bucket getter. Let's please welcome Jamal Crawford to Point Game. King of the Court one-on-one tournament. If they had it back in your prime, do you think he could have took it all? 
I'm gonna be honest with you, I don't think I could have took it all, but I think I would have shocked a lot of people. I think Kobe and everybody in their prime, Kobe would win a one-on-one contest. Yeah, I, yeah, because you gotta think Love he's it. gonna guard. He don't care about guarding. He's gonna guard. He's gonna exactly. guard. Like you see him in the Olympics, exactly. he's gonna guard. And then on I'm top of that, like that, see that. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sam Cassell to Point Game. I remember you came out from crying tears. <laughs> crying tears. I mean, he was in a culture shock. And then his, he's going to withdraw us about winning. Remember what I told you? I said, I said, OG, you think I can get paid and go back and play in college? Because it ain't it. <laughs> Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Ben Baskin is the creator, writer, host of a terrific new podcast series called Lost in Sports, which explores the mysteries of the lost, forgotten, disappeared stories in the sports world. His most recent episode, which you can find on the feed this week, is about the bite fight, the infamous heavyweight showdown between Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield that ended with Tyson taking a big chunk out of Evander's ear. Specifically, Ben explored what the hell happened to that piece of ear, which never made it back onto Evander Holyfield's head. So, Ben, let's start there. Why did this fight, this story, kind of fit into your podcast? So, what I tried to do with this podcast is kind of take some stories that people have heard of that we'll remember, like this one, obviously, one of the most infamous moments in sports. Um, some episodes are things maybe you've never heard of, but even for the ones that you have heard of, we wanted to kind of find a different way in, a, something you might not have known. And what I kind of found kind of randomly is that the piece of Evander Holyfield's ear that Mike Tyson bit off and spit out kind of went through this weird saga after where it was found it was returned, it was lost, and then it was kind of, you know, the rumors swirled about what happened to it. And no one, you know, there's a couple guys, the guy, the MGM employee who found it in the ring and it was sort of the moment of his life. He was on David Letterman afterwards. Um, he kind of, you know, he, he was loving this moment. He started getting blamed. People thought he sold the ear, that there were rumors of an auction. And it changed his life. Like it, it genuinely altered the course of his life. He quit his job, um, you know, never worked in boxing again. And I just, you know, it, it, it called to me in the sense of, you know, this was a, a moment I remembered, even though I was really young, but I just never knew that aspect of the story. And the fact that people that were a part of it, like these guys that, you know, found the ear or the ambulance driver, you know, the, the paramedic that helped Holyfield to the hospital, They've never known for 20-something years what happened. It was kind of just something I knew I needed to, to dive in on. Yeah, and it's a really interesting way to dive into a story that's been widely covered, right? I mean, there have been documentaries about the bite fight. It's been part of every Mike Tyson narrative that's been written or uh, created about him. Hell, my friend George Willis wrote a whole book about the bite fight at that point. Um what I found most interesting right at the beginning was hearing kind of the impact the accusations had on the MGM employee. I mean, it, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it effectively derailed a job and a career that he really loved. A hundred percent. And it, in, in a really kind of weird way, because it wasn't like he got fired. It wasn't like, you know, this people were coming after him with pitchforks, but 
he did. He was this guy who really took pride in doing his job. He was a low level employee. You know, he had dreams of being a boxing trainer. He had dreams of opening a gym. He took a job at the MGM to get a foot in the door, pretty much thinking that if he got a job, you know, he started as a porter at the casino, pretty much a janitor, moved up to be a, a glove cutter where he, you know, got to be a, 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 in the ring, in the arena, helped with the, you know, cleaning up the ring, cutting the gloves. And he, all he wanted was to be in boxing. He moved to Vegas to be in boxing. And then after this happened, he went on David Letterman. He was sort of visible for a, you know, a few days. And then it turned on him where people started, you know, looking at him differently. He, you know, it, it might've been irrational, but that's, it was his truth. You know, he felt that people were, there were rumors swirling and he was the guy that had been talking about this. And, you know, he maintained he did nothing wrong. And as a result of all of it, he quit his job and, you know, he never worked in boxing again and, you know, moved back. He left Vegas and, you know, all these, all these years later, he still never knew what actually happened. You had a lot of conversations with a lot of people for this specific episode. What to you was the most revealing conversation? Because I'll tell you mine first listening was, and I'm blanking on his name. I had it written down somewhere, but I lost a piece of paper. The, he had taken people behind the scenes of podcast prep. Uh, the uh, former sparring partner, friend of Mike Tyson, who you had, he, he suggested to you, he was actually, he might have been the reason that Mike Tyson took a bite out of a Vander's ear. So Tom Patty, yes. Um, Tom Patty, there you go. Yeah. I was going to say, Tom to me was my, was the uh, really, so the other side of the story is, you know, answering the question that I thought, um, you know, I, as much as the, the, the fight was covered and as much as it's been kind of digested and, and talked about for, for years now, everyone sort of just chalks up Mike Tyson as being this impossible to explain kind of guy. Mike Tyson just does crazy things, you know? And, and so we never really asked why he bit an ear off. Like it's boxing. He was getting headbutted, but he didn't headbutt him back. He didn't, you know, he didn't throw an elbow. He didn't have a, a rabbit punch or a, you know, a low blow. He didn't hit him after the bell. He bit his ear off something you don't see every day. And um, so a part of that story is that for me, at least to, to kind of figure out everything around it is I first wanted to find out, kind of do the impossible and, and understand what was going on in, in Mike Tyson's head. Um, and, you know, that's a, a difficult thing to do, but part of that is sort of the psychological background of how Mike landed in that moment in 1997, everything that he went through from, you know, childhood to customato to, you know, heavyweight champion to prison to the comeback tour, Don King, everything like that. And the framework that I wanted to kind of give it to make it feel a little fresher because it was when I, you know, the way I talked to his friends about it, like Tom is, you know, Tom was a guy who was an amateur boxing champion. He's, uh, you know, has known Mike since he was 15. Uh, they lived together in Customato's house. And he just, you know, he, he really uh, astutely talked about how Mike has been fighting this kind of battle internally his whole life of like, you know, this dichotomy between where he grew up and who he was versus the guy he's trying to become. And he's sort of constantly in that battle. And in that moment, in that time, when he was sort of in a, a, a kind of a, a villainous character in boxing and sports, um, and had his back against the wall and found a fighter in Evander Holyfield he couldn't really bully or beat. 
you know, he snapped. And then, yes, uh, at the end, Tom sort of slipped in the story that he had told Mike a few days before the fight um, about Artie Diamond, a, a, you know, a 1940s, 50s boxer, and his story of biting a man's ear off in prison. And to me, it was just, you know, maybe it wasn't the exact reason. You know, Mike doesn't really know. But the fact that Tom Patty told Mike Tyson the story about another custom auto boxer who bit a man's ear off successfully turned himself into the baddest man in prison. It's a, it's a tough coincidence to, to not, you know, not draw the comparison. You uh, did not get to speak to Mike Tyson uh, for this, this episode. Um, you look, you're a great reporter. You've done it for a long time, worked over at SI with me for many years. Um, sometimes it's better. I've found in writing stories to write around because sometimes you actually get to, things like you had with, with Tommy there, like some truth. But if you had a chance to to have Mike Tyson be a part of it, what was the one thing that was kind of outstanding for you that, that you just would have loved to get Mike's perspective on if he had agreed to sit down? Believe me, we tried um, in so many different ways for so many months. Um, and, you know, Mike was, you know, he eventually just, you know, he's got a lot of things going on, his own projects, and he didn't, he didn't want to do this. But what I wanted to do, which we get to at the end of the story, but what I really was fascinated by with this is not just the bite fight, but everything that's come after for Mike Tyson. Um, the man he is today or is purporting to be, um, quarter of this just evolution he's, he's on. And, you know, his friends say he's changed his, you know, everyone close to him says he's a different guy now. And it's sort of this, to me, looking at it, it's, it's a really incredible transition from that moment in 1997 when he bit a guy's ear off, was suspended from boxing for over a year, then spiraled, kind of just went crazy, as everyone remembers at the end of his career, and then even after the end of his career, to now where he's sort of America's philosopher, and he's sort of this um, sage-like podcast host, and, you know, it... it, it I would love, I wanted to talk to Mike about that aspect. I wanted to like, to get an understanding of, of how true all of that is. Cause there's people who I talk to that call bullshit on it all. Let's say, you know, he's Mike Tyson. He'll, you know, we're a moment away from him doing something else. Um, and his friends say, you know, he's changed There's medication. There's a lot of stuff, but he even told Jim Gray recently and Jim, you know, related to me that he'd, he said he'd bite Evander's ear off again if, if, if it happened. Like, if he was still headbutting him, he would do it again. So how much, you know, how much has he really changed? And, um, you know, can people change? I, I, to me, I wanted to kind of take that big picture sense with Mike that we got to touch on through his friends at the end, sort of this coda of, you know, where Mike is now and forgiveness and redemption. But I was, I was really fascinated to just kind of hear Mike in his own words, say what that evolution was for him and where he is now in his life. Yeah, you you don't sympathize with Mike Tyson because he was convicted of rape. And as you know, Jim noted on your podcast, he sent him a letter and said, you know, I, I didn't do this, but I did four or five other things that, you know, make me belong, you know, behind these bars. So that has to be factored in. But maybe empathize is the right word for it because, I mean – as you note in, in the the meat of it, you kind of go into his backstory and 
yeah, I mean, the guy was pulled in 15 different directions. He had people reaching in his pocket. He had enablers that came around, especially when Don King was a big part of his life. He was effectively a prop uh, to make a lot of people a lot of money. And I, I can't imagine, Ben, the, the mental toll that that took on Mike Tyson, who came from the hardest of backgrounds, found himself in, in a whole in a, in a lucrative situation, but with some just bad people around him uh, sort of orchestrating a lot of it. To me, the story of Mike, as, as kind of hard to relate to of a guy in sports, like you look at Mike Tyson, you're like, I could never, you know, that's Mike Tyson. I can't possibly relate to that guy and what he's been through. But when you really pull it back, I do think Mike's story is really easy to empathize with and to connect with in a lot of ways. Because as you, you know, as you know, it as we get into, he was born into the worst possible conditions where, you know, most people either die or end up in jail. And he did what he had to do to survive is sort of like what it comes down to is it's very clear that Mike Tyson is a very intelligent person. If you hear him talk, if you hear him, he's, you know, he's just very clearly a smart guy. And sometimes what you're born into and what you're, you know, thrown into for the first 15 years of your life imprints on you a lot of things that are hard to shake. And, you know, for Mike, that was, you know, a, a, a getting introduced to liquor and drugs before he was a teenager. It was, you know, a, a family life that was far from stable. It was uh, gangs and, you know, the, the concept that you had to take something in order to survive. And I think what he's been fighting for a while now is trying to remove, like when he goes to Customato, that kind of, you know, starts to, to get removed, but then it gets amplified in another way because Cus, you know, screws, his, screws up his head even more. He saves him in boxing, but he turns him into a guy who thinks, you know, he's a god of war, the baddest man. He went to a hypnotist. To me, that's like he sent Tyson to a hypnotherapist and hypnotized him to tell him he was a god of war. Um, so like he, every step along the way, he finds someone or some environment that is continually, you know, screwing with his psyche and screwing with the mechanisms that make decision-making for people. So I do think now, you know, you, he's removed from that a little bit and he's, you know, on it, obviously not, you know, dealing with trainers and promoters and all that. So, you know, but it is, it's still, his friends say, you know, he's still fighting those same demons. You're still fighting that fight against yourself in a lot of ways. So I do think that's kind of what my hope was with the episode, not to, you know, in no way do you want to be sympathetic and because of everything, you know, all the, like it's, it, there's few people in sports that have been forgiven and embraced for, for more egregious crimes than, than Mike has. But in a lot of ways I do want, I did want to kind of show a story that you at least understood some of the stuff that, you know, explains maybe Mike Tyson a little bit more than you, you than you thought you could. Oh, one of the great layers that occasionally gets peeled back with Mike Tyson is the question of like, was Mike Tyson even a great fighter? Like I've asked this question a lot because you know, he, he was up for the Hall of Fame a few years back. And Tyson 100% deserves his slot in the Hall of Fame. Just like Arturo Gatti, like, even if you weren't the best of the best or as accomplished as others, you were boxing for a period of years. And Tyson was boxing for, for many years. But I go back and forth, Ben, on, like, you know, he doesn't have really any quality wins. Like Larry Holmes at the end of his career, Trevor Burbick, Spinks. Like, I mean, these were... 
you know, B-level wins at best. And, like, we were about to learn about Tyson after the Buster Douglas. I mean, he had the two fights with Razor Ruddick, but, like, you know, if he had not gone to jail, he would have probably fought Foreman. He would have probably fought Holyfield sooner. Yeah. Maybe Riddick Bowe in that mix. You know, career-defining fights. Like, the great unknown in Tyson's boxing career is was Douglas an aberration or was that like a precursor to Mike Tyson being demystified, which we see in boxing all the time. When when somebody beats you, all of a sudden it's like, well, this guy's not that bad. He doesn't scare me that much. I mean, I'll tell you, it was, it was funny. Like, so many fighters went into fights against Tyson petrified. I mean, Buddy McGirt once told me when he was training Clifford Etienne, you know, Etienne like went to the ring. Etienne was so jacked up. He's like, I'm gonna beat this guy. I'm gonna beat this guy. I'm I'm great. I'm gonna be the champ. And then Tyson's music comes on. Tyson walks to the ring. He takes off that cut white towel off his head, throws it onto the ground, and then Buddy said, You could literally see Cliff's soul leave his body as you know, as Mike did that. And then the fight was immediately over. I mean, that's just like one of the great to me, that's one of the great Tyson Quest. I don't know if you have an opinion on it, but like, was he even great? Or was he just a guy that was a scary puncher that when he got to the highest level, or was approaching the highest level, he was exposed by, by a Buster Douglas and would have been further exposed by the Foremans, the Bows, the Holyfields, if he had not gone to prison. I, uh, well, I'd argue that the, the ability to scare your opponent before you're even in the ring is a useful boxing ability like that's not to take away from like that makes him what he was like you know he that was part of the persona and the in the, the mythos of mike was sort of that ring walk and the, the the spartan nature of the you know the towel over the head and kind of a stare in your eyes like when you're in a fight with a guy like that if you can if you can get the intimidation before the fight starts you know that's that's a plus for him in in his resume like i don't take that away from him as something i will say it is it's tough i've watched a lot of tyson fights when i was doing this and going back and um you look at some of those early fights and he was he was such a power puncher but he was also such a smart heavyweight in the way he used his, you know, the, the way he, he picked his shots and the way he defended himself with Cuss's peekaboo style, he was more than just kind of a, a, a power guy. And I just think my opinion, I, I would have loved, you know, he, he had two fights scheduled with Holyfield before, well before the, the, the original ones, you know, before Buster Douglas lost and then before prison, they were supposed to fight in the late eighties. Um, that would have been great. I just think it's one of those unanswerable because the real question is if, Customato hadn't died or if Cust, you know, died and someone else managed to keep Mike on track, would he have been able to maintain the same, you know, trajectory? And it, it, it have, you know, uh, hard punchers, heavyweight knockout artists traditionally don't have these long careers that they can fight, you know, at their prime when they're in their thirties, like some of the smaller guys can do. So it's not all that surprising that when he gets older, and is you know he's not knocking guys out with one shot that he you know he deteriorated in, in such a way. But I there's there's no when you go back to the early fights, despite the guy he's fighting the guys you know the heavyweight division wasn't loaded, um, and it wasn't like he was fighting guys and just eviscerating them. And to me, I don't know you know I'm not putting them in there with any like you put them up against 
one of the great heavyweights I, you know, of all time. I don't think it's, even though I think Muhammad Ali even said back in the day that Tyson would have beaten him. I think they did like an interview together. I don't buy that for a second, but neither do I. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, I take, you got to take the guy for the time he was and the moment it was. And for those few years with young Mike Tyson, there was nothing better. Like, you know, it was, it was, you know, for a moment frozen in time, you can play the what if game as like, you know, the career he could have had or should have had, but I just loved watching it. You know, like the guy was exhilarating. He, he was, he was, you're right. Intimidation's always been, you know, part of the fabric of boxing. I always remember Vladimir Klitschko when he would step in the ring for referee instructions. Now you can basically bring a plus one with you. Usually it's your trainer, Vladimir always brought Vitaly. Yeah. So you, when the opponent is staring at Vladimir Klitschko, he's also looking at six foot seven Vitaly Klitschko right behind him. So mentally, it's all uh, part of the process. Um, I don't want to give away the ending because I want people to listen to it and, and follow along and find out. But let me ask you this. How confident are you that you know what, ha- after reporting all this, that you know what happened to Evander Holyfield's missing piece of ear? What I'll say is what I know, I am confident that I know what, how it all kind of, you know, where it went in, a, in the first stage, sort of how it got lost, I guess, is sort of the, you know, the beginning of it. And I'm not going to like the, the mystery of where it is today. I'm not going to say we solved that one. And I believe me, I tried. Um, we didn't get any of the, uh, you know, it's, it's not surprising to know when you call people and you ask them if, you, if they've ever heard of or sold, sold or held an auction or were a part of an auction underground in the, you know, the, the human ear community. Um, people are a little cagey to talk about that. I did have some good conversations with some people in that wider community because what I learned, and we didn't put a lot of this in the episode, I think any of it, but there is a, a community of people that... Ch- collect relics, um, body parts, usually often always not from living people, you know, whether that's, you know, someone's finger from 1900s or, you know, all these things. So I did talk to people that said it is not only not inconceivable, but probably likely that there was an underground auction and someone bought this ear and it still has it to this, although Something, this is, this is a good one and I wanted to get in there, but something that I found that I didn't realize is that in this community of relics, celebrity relics, you know, they believe that these things have holy powers. So when they get one, something they do sometimes is ingest it. They swallow the piece of, of body to absorb the power of the person. So someone I talked to said, you know, they didn't know this, was, but they said if they had the bet, they think a diehard Evander Holyfield fan bought this ear and then swallowed it, um, which <laughs> I, I that like it's not in the podcast because it's ridiculous. But um, <laughs> so where it is and I and I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping that someone out there is going to listen and they're going to call me up. You know, the, the, the numbers in there, my emails at the end say, hey, I know what happened. I can connect you because it until you get that connection into that community, they're not inviting you into the to the ear selling community. Um, but apparently, it's a community. So, God, somebody. Uh, so if you know, so, if so, someone out there knows, phones are open. Phones are open. I'm, I'm sorry that didn't make it 
into your podcast, but I'm glad I made it into mine. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm loving that. I was either thought like somebody either ate it or it's going to wind up on like, you know, Jeff Bezos's ear. Some billionaire is going to sew it on and have it for the legalities you know. are there. Talent. There's a whole legal because it's not even entirely sure. Every state is different. So the person, this expert I was talking to said, it's not, even if someone comes out and says they have it, it's not entirely clear if Evander Holyfield would be able to make a claim for it. Like that it's, you'd think he would, you'd think he'd say, Hey, that's my ear skin, you know, give it back to me. But she was like, you know, it, it depends on the state. It's possible that this person could come out, you know, and, and, you know, not face any repercussions. So unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, Ben, the entire episode is fantastic. The entire series is fantastic. I encourage people to go over there and watch. It's called Lost in Sports. Uh, ben is the writer, the narrator, the host, everything to do with that podcast. Uh, great stuff, Ben. I appreciate taking some time to join me here. Thanks, Chris. Always a pleasure, man. So, you're a sports fan. That's why you're listening, baby! But if you're considering getting in on the fun of sports gambling, I want to let you know about a great resource. The Action Network. And I'm all over it like Revis Island. I have nothing but great things to say about it. The Action Network is where fans go when they're ready to bet smarter and turn a profit betting on sports. In fact, their free Action Network app was recently named the best app in sports betting. With the Action app, you can see the latest picks and articles from Action Network gambling experts, as well as personalities like Colin Cowherd, compare odds from different sports books, and track every bet you make so you always know how your picks are doing. So, if the game means more to you, download the free Action Network app and start betting smarter. That's it for this week's episode. My thanks to Sergio Mora and Ben Baskin for joining the show. As always, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, rate, review when you can, and we will see you next week. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Open a limited time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average. Plus, it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.